Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to yet another episode of the ESPN Footy Pod, proudly sponsored by Subway. Nothing is as big as a footlong. Matt Walsh, Jake Michaels and Christian Jolly with you again. There's a lot to work through this week. Umpires are a hot topic again, for better or worse. Crowds are in uh, question. The Blues are up and about. There'll be some chat about the Perth teams and Matt Rowell and a whole lot more. Welcome back, Jake Michaels. Feeling a bit better compared to last week when you were uh, a little bit sick? Oh, podcast day is one of my favorite days of the week. Um, one of my favorite hours of the week, but I, I just couldn't. I couldn't get out of bed. That was, without exaggerating, that might be the worst I've ever felt in my life from any kind of sickness. For Horrible. a man who constantly tells us how he never takes sick days at ESPN, <laughs> he ended up taking about three or four and uh, and just decided to enjoy bed. So it must have been pretty bad. Yeah, it was bad. Not good. Had to go to the hospital, uh, get put on a drip. And yeah, they just thought it was the flu. But, but not um, had I reckon I've had about 20 COVID tests in the last month. And no, it just keeps coming up negative. So more good to be back. Big more agenda or less to COVID tests than during the tennis. Yeah, well, I reckon since the start of the year, I was actually saying this the other day, I reckon I've done about 50 now since the start of the year because we were doing one every day at the tennis. I reckon I've done 20 um, in the last month alone, just doing one every day because I've been sick for so long, but not fun. You don't get used to it. No. In fact, you've, you you might have passed it through the airwaves to Christian Jolly, who's, we were supposed to be actually back in the office last week when uh, to, to, to record. We've normally been doing these on Zoom the last couple of years. We're supposed to make a triumphant return to the Disney offices uh, last week. But Jake, because you pulled out, we decided to go on Zoom again. And then this week, Christian, you're not feeling too well. You're a bit under the weather. So we have to push it back another week. Um, <laughs> longtime producer, Jesse Robinson, who, who's keen for us to get back into the office. He's spewing. He yeah, wants he's to get spewing. And I forgot to tell him that we weren't coming in. So he's a bit, <laughs> bit ticked off with us. Well, apologies Christian, are you feeling that. okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll... Uh... Don't have any good stories like going to hospital and being on a drip, so I feel a bit soft. But yeah, no, yesterday was pretty flawed. Similar thing. Uh, took a test Sunday night. Took a test yesterday, both negative. But flawed be deaf. Flu-like symptoms yesterday. Feeling a bit better today. But yeah, yeah, thought I'd stay away from spreading whatever I have into the office. But nah, Jake. Jake puts me to shame, so maybe I just need to toughen up a little bit. It's been going around. There's been a few little bugs going. Don't around. Don't say it's going around. I hate when people say. It's, when is it not going around? When is it the cold or flu or now during COVID summer? Not when going there's, around. There's nothing around. To be fair, I've had a bit of hay fever. That's about as bad as I've felt the last few oh. weeks. So. Maybe you guys are just being, being soft. Hey, something you noticed from round 10, Jake? Anything uh, interesting take your attention? Um, there were a few things that took my attention in round 10, but I, I got to go back to Friday night and I don't want to be, I don't, as as our listeners would know, we are all Carlton supporters. So I don't want to be too Carlton, but just the eight, draw. eight and two, one of the better teams now, so we can talk about them. Mm. But the, the raw and the, the, the reaction of the final siren on Friday night when yet again, we almost coughed up a 40, 50 point lead. Look who's talking in we's now. Well, we, this, us, that. Why not? It is a we. <laughs> Team effort here. Um, <laughs> oh, it was great. You know, just the something about that roar on the siren. And it's not, I'm not just saying this as a Carlton supporter because I've been critical of the club over the last decade, but there is something good and something that uh, that is added to, to football when Carlton is not necessarily a powerhouse, but somewhat in the mix and a good team, and mm. you, you, their fans can show up knowing that they're going to they're going to be in most games. And I think that's a good thing for football. Same same thing to be said about 
a lot of the big clubs, Essendon, Collingwood, Richmond. I think you can say the same thing about all those clubs. Um, yeah, big crowd, biggest home and away crowd between those clubs ever. Um, I, I went as well on Friday night and I got there nice and early and there were about 25 rows that were restricted to pre-purchase tickets. So the general admission areas were severely restricted. Really, the place was at capacity because, you know, the medallion club never fills up. Um, prepaid members on on level one, you're never going to get them full. But the general admission areas were absolutely chockers. Yeah. And you're right. There's There's been talk about crowds this week. We might chat about them a, a little bit more, but it just depends on which clubs are going well, doesn't it, really? Well, it does. Um, there were, uh, you're right. We will talk about it more. But the, the you only have to look at the games that didn't really get a crowd and they're some of the poorer teams. Makes and sense. You know, if, if, Carl, if this Carlton-Sydney uh, Carlton game was two years ago, the cra- that crowd would be half that. Well, so, we would have none because it would have been mid-COVID and no well, one would have been true, there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Christian, something from the weekend uh, that you noticed. Um, no, probably a little one tongue-in-cheek, but I did notice it. I'm not the first weekend I noticed it, but the crowd booing score reviews. When <laughs> they go to a score review and it's hit the post, and we can see it's hit the post, and they tell us it's hit the post, and then people start booing. So I find that quite funny. That's just, that's just a small one that I've noticed. It's, yeah, as I said, not the first time I noticed. I'm like, what are they? Are they booing at the correctness of this score yeah. review? or <laughs> Booing at the time <laughs> wasted? Booing at the... Yeah. There, was a, there was one, um, not to... Not to fire a shot at ESPN alumni Nick Rewalt, but um, he he made a comment at one point in one of the games. I can't remember what it was. The, the, one of the teams was up by like 40 points, a few minutes to go, and they went to a score review and he said, do we really need a score review that like given, you know, sort of alluding to the fact that the, the game is over? Well, yeah, we do because we need to get it right because who's to say one per- point one of a percentage point won't be the difference between a spot in the eight um, or a spot in the four or whatever at the end of the season. Well, funny you mentioned that because my I've got a couple of something I noticed. The first one, and I'm surprised you didn't bring this to the table, Jake, was the double poster from Robbie Gray. The double poster? Another it's double back. poster. Yeah, it's back. So we had a, he had a shot, a snap around the body, hit the near post, then ricocheted off the far post, and then back into play. I did see that, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, but the other one was there are teams at the moment that are literally equal seventh, down to point. 0.0019 percentage point. Um, yes. And it's funny, you, you mentioned like it could be the difference between playing finals or not. Um, because at the moment, I think it's Sydney is just ahead of Richmond by 0.0019. Yeah, I did notice. And they're playing each other this week. Yeah. So they, they literally could not split them. Um, and I found that interesting. And I wonder if that's made waves throughout the champion data offices, Christian. <laughs> As I said, I haven't been in this week, so <laughs> don't know what they're talking about. But just oh, again, another leader one I noticed. Just I don't feel like uh, Mark McVeigh's got enough credit. I know they were playing West Coast, so you know probably expected to win. But I think they had that forward line um, just functioning as good as you know as good as it has all year. Moved Harry Himmelberg down. Yeah, back what did you think of that? A few people, but don't know. It will seem to work for them. Sixty. They scored from sixty-nine percent of their entries, which is the second highest percentage by a team in any game this year. And, you know, people might turn around and say, well, they'll play in a pretty weak opposition. No one else has done that against West Coast this year. So, you know, yeah. the, the, the only high percentage was St Kilda, I think, against Hawthorne, scored at a better uh, strike rate. But, yeah, week one for Mark McVeigh. You know, I feel like that game's been glossed over a little bit. I think we'll talk to cr- about crowds soon. And I don't think, you know, many people actually rocked up and paid attention to the game. But, yeah, just a, a <laughs> watch a tick. To, just to see how well he can get this uh, um, this forward line uh, potency back going which is one of their strengths from a couple of years ago it's yeah it's interesting that you say that because um 
and the fact that other clubs haven't been able to do it. Yes, the caveat is obviously the opposition, uh, but th- that is pretty impressive. And, and we talked about it last week, the dead cat bounce that clubs have with a new coach and add another one to the list. Yeah, and it was a, it was a bit of a different look. So DeBoer spent 100% of his time up forward. James Peatling is one of the younger guys. Um, also made Played a move a great into there. Game, so Jimmy Peatling. You yeah, gave him so votes, didn't you, Jake? I think he was. He might have snuck into the Brownlow votes. <laughs> Fantastic game. There we are. Uh, <laughs> let's move into the agenda. We haven't got like a big deep dive kind of thing. We might dive into something a little bit later, but we've got a few things we've got to run through. Um, firstly, we'll get it out of the way early, Jake, and you sort of mentioned it off the top, but the Blue Boys, are we are we believers in what they're bringing to the table? I know. No, we are. We're up and about. I, well, I am. I was up for, I've been up for three months now, but are you guys with me yet? Well, we talked about a month into the into the competition about the sort of the premiership metrics and that Carlton were still struggling with scores from turnovers and preventing opposition scores from turnovers. And they weren't quite hitting the numbers that they need to, um, that are usual hallmarks of a premiership contender. Mm. Christian, um, are they there yet? Not yet. Getting there, oh. but not yet. And again... <laughs> The, again, we talk, we've spoken about this number before um, and how it's sort of underrated. Percentage. So you're talking yeah. about percentage of Richmond, Sydney can't split them. I still look at Carlton's percentage and it ranks eighth. So I'm not exactly, I'm not writing them off or anything, but I'll, and, you know, we probably can talk about their list profile as well and how young they were on the weekend. So, but it's all about, it's happening. The fu- You know, it's mm. happening and it's going to get better in the future. But to say that they're ready now to sort of go up against Melbourne and Brisbane and sort of challenge for the flag this year, there's still, um, particularly on the defensive side of the field, still a lot to get, you know, to fix up to join those two in terms of, you know, how well they play and control games. How concerning are these consistent uh, third quarter drop-offs? Because we were talking about this, uh, I think, yesterday, Matt. Um, Yes. I'm not as concerned as you. You made a, couple, a good point the, about this in, in the sense that so long as you're winning, does it matter if you do the damage in the first half? If I'd you're prefer good enough to be to better in the things. second half, but I, I don't know. Yeah, would you rather... So you talk about trying to, yeah, you talk about Sorry, trying to win gone. a premiership and, you know, sustainability and things. Again, just going back, they had a few good third quarters. So, you know, recently the third quarters have gone bad. But just in terms of quarters won, they've won 20 and lost 20. So they've got a 50% strike rate in quarters as well within games, which is ranked equal 10th in the competition. So if you're talking about being able to do that week in and week out, you can't win 50% of your quarters and expect to sort of dominate across you, you the season. You can't, but the fact that they've, they're 50-50 with quarters, yet third on the ladder and eight and two, shows that their best is as good as anyone's best. Correct, yeah. Um, it's something I did take uh, interest in earlier in the season, and I haven't brought this up for a while just because we've got a lot to talk about week in, week out, and we just can't make it all about the, the baggers. But uh, <laughs> their list profile does interest me, Christian, and it's going to spark uh, a bit of a deep dive next week that Jared Bark is going to do for the website, espn.com.au forward slash AFL, talking about list profiles and when the peak of a profile is or when a player's at their peak of their powers, what age or how many games played that might be. Because I think that's an interesting thing to kind of consider because everyone kind of says, oh, you know, he's 27, so he's at his peak or he's 24, so he's entering his prime, all this sort of stuff. Um, so we're, we're going to try and sort of scientifically work this out with a few statistics. So keep your eyes peeled for that next week. But in terms of the Blues, um, I've noticed for a long time now, their most experienced player week in, week out hasn't even played 150 games. Yeah, yeah so on the weekend, that was Patrick Cripps, who was playing his 147th game. Um, so they're the only te- they were the only team this weekend not to have a player play at least 150 games across their career with 
some of the other teams, you know, up with five or six, seven guys um, above that number. Mm. Uh, so second least experienced, the second youngest team um, on the weekend, which again, surprised me. I knew we weren't in the older bracket, but to but be don't feel that 17th, young. I know, just as I said, like 17 players under the age of 26. And if you're talking about the first look into this, uh, into, you know, when do players peak and things like that and look into Jared Barker's article, which you're still going to look into, but 26 seems to be a pretty comfortable number in terms of, between the ages of 24, 25, 26, players just get better. And then from there, you might see a bit of a, either um, a plateau or a drop-off slightly. Right. But and there are going to be on the weekend, as I said, yeah. on this. Because, yeah, I mean, you mentioned it in our little pre-pod meeting. If you look at 33-year-olds, by and large, those that are still playing at 33 are bloody good players. So yeah. the, the, num- the numbers are skewed. So we're trying to narrow it down a bit even further and, and eliminate these caveats or, or explain these caveats. And I think that's why... Um, it's going to take another week for us to get this put together and for Jared Barker to do some deep diving. Yeah, exactly. It's it's almost the, the standard line of good players play longer. Yeah. So um, how do you, you know how do you work out when a player's peaked? If you know you've got Gary Ablett at a 35 year old who was probably the best general forward we've ever seen. So it's is 35 years old the best best time to play general forward? I, I wouldn't have thought so. There you go. Well, 26, Jake. Uh, it must be encouraging then that the Blues have got a number of players at that age or or less or fewer or, or younger rather. Um, does, what does that mean for the future? Are we looking at a, a navy blue dynasty in coming years? Um, not going to go that far, but <laughs> yeah, it, obviously, it's of course it's encouraging because we've spoken about teams like Geelong and West Coast, some of these older teams that you know we've we're seeing it now with the Eagles, the drop off, um, the older players that aren't quite performing to the level that we have come to expect, and all of a sudden they have this massive drop off. You know, Carlton's in a great position; they really are. Um, a lot of young players. And I think you look at the spine um, and on every line, there's pretty much an A grader on every line of that spine. And they're all 26 or 27 or, or younger, which is, I don't know if there's another team in the league you could say that about. So look, the, the future is bright, but there, there are still things that need to be sorted out. And the 20, 20 and 20, 50, 50 uh, quarter win, win loss rate isn't great. We, we, we're not, dominating as much as we probably could be um and i am saying we but as i said the best when carlton carlton's best is as good as anyone you know and and i'm including melbourne in that I, Mm. i just think melbourne do it for much longer periods of a game but carlton's best best eight minute periods or quarters have been as good as anybody i think you have to put the caveat on that is ball in hand ball in hand for those eight minutes has been brilliant but i i can't think of a tight, yeah. Again, looking at the defensive end, which is aesthetically harder to see and watch. But again, I look at Melbourne and Brisbane and just think of how how hard it is to move the ball against those teams. And I think that's why Carlton at the moment, for all the neutrals, they are the best team to watch because they're mm. exciting with ball in hand, but they're not strangling to like they're actually giving the other teams opportunities. And we just spoke about the fifty percent quarter wins, so the games are up and down. I think that's why they're great to watch. Um, and yeah, I have to agree with you. Ball in hand, one of the best teams in it. But as I keep saying, it's it's the stuff off the ball that, you know, I sort of notice a lot compared to Brisbane and Melbourne in terms of how well the opposition moves the ball against Carlton. Well, you mentioned the Lions and how they are able to sort of stop the other team with ball in hand. They allowed 117 points on the weekend, uh, which was a lot. In fact, their score of 112, I'm pretty sure, was the highest losing score at Launceston throughout the AFL's history. Uh, that's actually, that was something else I noticed. And I was going to ask that to, to Christian When's the last time two teams have scored 112 points? Sure. 
Like you put it like, a specific number for me to fight. I'll, uh, or a hundred. We might, while you do, while you might be able that. to tweet that one out. I, mean, I don't know if I'll get that while, while we're on the pod. <laughs> that was the high numbers, Jake, is kind of the point I'm making. Yeah. Another high number in that game, 63 free kicks. Um, much higher than the average of 44.2, which we've seen this season, which is six higher than we've seen in 2021 per game. So up yeah, but if there are 63 free kicks to be paid, well, this is 63. my question. Were there having a look at some of those, and this is this has been a, a bit of a, a contentious uh, listening to talkback radio yesterday, watching some of the shows like the panel shows last night. There were some really really poor ones, little taps on the shoulder, little shoves after the ball has has, has dribbled out of bounds. Um, we had a we saw on Friday that Chad Warner got pinged after taking a bounce, then got pinged for fifty for umpired dissent, which wasn't even dissent. I think the point I'm trying to circle here is that. I think that umpires are being asked to do too much overall. There is just too much going on for these three field umpires at any one time to be trying to pay attention to bringing in new rules, looking at a 10 meter protected zone, looking off the ball to see if, if someone's, you know, jumper punching someone else, making sure the players are in the, in the square for six, 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 um, you know, the new holding the ball interpretations uh, is it high is it, I, I just think that we're being asked to do a little bit too much, um, as umpire, so we, uh, I think umpires are being asked to do a little bit too much, and it's just affecting their abilities to see the game as it needs to be seen as a game, and not as a, a sideshow with all these off the ball stuff and all these tiggy touchwood little free kicks. So I'm with you in terms of look. I, I don't want to get into the quality of umpire. We can you know just debate that after. I don't know. I feel like the, the quality of umpiring, nobody knows whether it's gone up or down. Every year, people Correct. just say it's gone down. So it's just, it's, it's exhausting to listen, listen to mm. um, because, it, but the thing is, I do know that the umpires do keep stats. They have missed free kicks, I believe, and unwarranted free kicks. So the Does champion data have access to that? No. So that's mm. purely for uh, umpire coaching and umpire things. They could release those numbers or some sort of, you know, version of those numbers just to show us is umpiring declining. Are we missing more? Or are we getting more free kicks than previous? No one knows. So we all just, all of this uh, commentary around it week to week, as I said, it's exhausting because, People are always in the negative, but no one's got any proof that we're missing more free kicks or paying more. Yeah. But you're right in terms of the game's never seen more rules. Every mm. year we add a new rule or a new... Yeah, we never take anything away. And we, yeah, nothing ever gets deleted. So even a little thing for me, like this isn't too much brain or anything, but just the you know brain power to do. But just the fact that when there's a score review, the umpire has to find the ball that was last kicked get it in his hands and hold onto the ball before he can go to the score review person. So it's just this small process of yeah. remember to do this. Remember if there's a six, six, six rule, you have to go up to the Ruckman, give him a warning yeah. and remember then you have to throw it up, not bounce it up. So all these, these little tiny weird process. Yeah. And they're part-timers. So I don't want to get, yeah, that's the, that's I know we will get into the debate of quality of umpiring, but I, I don't have a, I don't have a comment on that because I don't know the quality mm. of umpiring. It, it just seems to be goes around in circles that every year we say it's the worst, it's the worst, but yeah. the game's still around. But the thing for me is, yeah, that in terms of how, how much they have to look for and how much their job entails now, it's just, it's almost not fair on a part-timer to do all of that. I rarely watch a game, a full game and, and come away thinking the umpires cost this team a win. Like it's rare that I think the umpires played enough of a role that and one team won over another. So I don't, I think everyone loves to, to bash umpires in any sport. That's just the nature of being a sports fan. That's just what we do. Um, but to me, the biggest issue is what you just said. You've nailed it. It's part-timers. 
That's the most ridiculous thing of all. I feel terrible. Um, are for there me. a lot of rules? Yeah, but also you could say that about a lot of sports. There are, it, as an umpire, there are you know, there's not just one thing you got to look for. Yeah. What's the solution? You know, well, with the, with the 36 thing. players on the ground, do you need to have a fourth? Remember, they trialed the four, the four field umpires. I think they do they trial that in the preseason or during the buy rounds a few years ago or something. I feel like they yeah, we've had that. it. We've, we've had it pre-seasons and we've had it during the buy rounds as well. So yeah. Bits and pieces. And again, during the buy rounds, they're able to do it because of personnel numbers because there's less find games. More free kicks are paid because we have more umpires and then more things are spotted because if every single thing, if, if, if it was like, let's just say it was all done on a computer and you picked out every little thing that could be a free kick throughout a game, you'd be paying 200 free kicks. We don't want that. No. I think we need to keep it simple for them. I think asking them to to devote brain power, and you sort of see how the, the, the boundary umpires have to take the ball back to the centre in such a regimented way. There are all these things that could be streamlined to make the job of part-timers easier, and I just don't think that Brad Scott and the AFL is doing that at the moment. And I think it's being reflected in some of the free kicks that we're seeing that it's just being overanalyzed to a point where it doesn't need to be. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm not one to bash umpires, and, and like you said, I'm not one to think that umpires cost teams games. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but we've got to help them out a bit. Uh, we're already losing enough umpires, and and you know there's been reports on on umpiring and and how they are losing numbers because of abuse and female umpires because of sexual harassment and all this sort of stuff. I think at the top level, obviously there are issues down further down at grassroots, but at the top level, we've got to help them out. We've got to make it a bit easier for them. And the way that um, the current regime is is trying to have umpires umpire the game and beyond is just too much. As far as I'm concerned, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts before we move on. Yeah, I think you summed it up, um, but I don't really know what, aside from making them full time, I, I don't really understand. I don't really know what you can do. Like, yeah. we do we get rid of rules? Like, there are a few things that I think are a little bit silly that we ha- still have, but there's a bit of a not a left field one for me, but something I heard years ago, and it's it's the running that's involved in the job to be an umpire. So to be an umpire, I think you know you have to clock up a certain time in either a three kilometer time trial or run you know i don't know what distance it is but you have to sort of break a mark to be considered for the umpire apparently that mark back five or ten years ago only ten percent of players would actually pass that mark as well so there's no sport in the world where we're we're hiring athletes to officiate the game we're not not actually getting just you know people that are professional umpires you've got to be a a damn good runner before you can even get a look in for the umpire. And I think that's one big thing that's got to change. Tell you what I'd like to do, Jake, maybe we can organize this in in coming weeks or months is embed ourselves at an umpire's training session or something and just try and work out how hard it is not only to match the physical capabilities, which I doubt I would be able to do at all, but then to have to make (laughs) the decisions as well and just, just see how hard it is. And then we'll see if, you know, Jimmy, who's a hundred kilos and, and sits in the in the stands eating pies, yelling abuse to the umps, and, and yeah. See how the he other the other that. thing which which you do do notice as well when you go from watching on TV to watching at the ground, and especially when you're lo- lower down to the ground and the perspective, you don't have that bird's eye sort of perspective. Is even judging a 15 meter kick is so <laughs> difficult when you're on the ground running and you're. It's we look at it on TV and they're, oh, that's about a 13 meter. It's like <laughs> it's. It's it's hard. It's not easy. We don't cut umpires enough slack. A hundred percent. Crowds are down. Is this linked to umpires, Jake? I mean, we saw some pretty poor ones on the weekend, albeit involving some poor teams. No, it's not linked to umpires. They were all poor teams except Melbourne. I know it. I know it wasn't a Melbourne 
home game against yeah. North on Saturday afternoon. But like the game's still in Melbourne. Yep, fourteen thousand <laughs> people turned up. You're on, on top a, of on the a table Saturday afternoon, and you haven't lost a game. The, the club is as good as it's been in sixty years, and these people won't make their way yeah. to an indoor I was stadium. Say, a couple of Ks there, across. Isn't the there? City. Isn't there a, a few clubs in Victoria that don't count Marvel Stadium as being in Melbourne? Oh, honestly, <laughs> the, the cheek of some fans. It's not like you got to go out to Ballarat or something. The hatred for that stadium, yeah, surprises me. But I, I feel like that was a part of it. I feel like if that was a North home game at the MCG, you might get an extra 5,000 Melbourne supporters. But Which as soon I as I saw understand. it was at Marvel, I wasn't expecting him to rock up at all. But I thought the I thought that crowd was was Woeful. pretty pathetic, really. Um, Giants hosted the Eagles, 5,000 people. I mean, are we worried about that? I, I, look, I was at Giants Stadium last week when they had a home game and there were maybe 12,000 people there, half were opposition supporters. Mm. But of the Giants fans that I did see, a lot of them were kids. A lot of them were kids under 10. Who, yeah, which is good. That's what that's what you want. That's what the AFL wants. And it's the same with Gold Coast as well. I mean, how many West Coast fans are doing that trip from, from Perth to... Uh, to Sydney to go and watch West Coast get beaten by 60 points. So let, let me tell you, it almost it. takes as long to drive out to um, Homebush from, from Sydney Airport <laughs> as it does to <laughs> it does. fly to Perth from Sydney Airport. Yeah, it's in the absolute sticks. <laughs> but um, yeah, that was another one. It was I, I switched that on and I thought, have I put the NRL on? There's no one in the, there's no one in the crowd. <laughs> uh, speaking of the Eagles, how bad are they, Christian? Because... Um, something that I, I saw on Reddit took my interest and it's that their percentage actually went up with their loss to the Giants on the weekend. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, so the, the percentage going up because I think they only lost by 50-odd uh, points, um, whereas I think coming into that game, they had an average losing margin across the last four weeks alone of about 80 points. So, um, yeah, sort of improved on the weekend, even though they still got smashed by nine goals. But... Yeah, the thing is, I mean, looking at percentage after 10 rounds, 51.4%, uh, you know, it's, I think it's the 17th lowest all time, but, you know, a whole lot of 1899s and 1901s uh, before that. But of recent times, we've seen the Giants, probably the worst, 2012, when they first came in with 47%. Um, uh, we'd actually, yeah, same record as the Eagles, so one and nine. Uh, at 47% at round 10. Uh, sorry, yeah, round 10. So that was the worst. Um, and then leading into Giants the next year, 2013, there were 51.2%. And Melbourne, 2013, were 51.4%. Uh, and as I said, they're now West Coast, 51.5%. So probably the fourth lowest in the modern era. Mm. Um, but as I said, yeah, surprising. In terms of, we were looking last week in terms of West Coast North. So North is the, you know, probably the next lowest percentage of modern times, 53.6%. Um, but those two teams, I know North finally bucked the trend, but going into last week, they'd lost, both teams had lost five games in a row by at least 50 points. We'd never seen two teams do that within a single season. So it was almost, it was almost looking at West Coast North last week going, geez, have we seen two teams this bad in the same season? As I said, a little bit of 2013 where we had Melbourne and Giants, you know, probably worse than West Coast percentage wise at this stage of the year. Um, but it is, it's besides that season, it's very hard to find two teams as well. And, as and, that, and neither of these North. teams are expansion sides. You know, they're, they're established teams that just aren't good at the moment. Yeah. Uh, look, West Coast have had their, not, not excuses, but there have been reasons why they've not been as competitive as they possibly could be. North, oh, look, North haven't had those excuses, I don't think, um, which is concerning. And obviously there's a lot of discussion about them at the moment. Um, 
David Noble and his approach to coaching, which would be a massive, massive concern, I think, for fans out there listening to to some of the stuff that's coming out of that club. I'd be I'd be really concerned. Uh, and you could see, you know, I, I, what a year and a half he's been in the gig. He might not be in it too much longer. Not to not to say that we're firing David Noble or Adam Simpson, but who would you rather coach? If you got a three year contract that you could pick which one, which club you're coaching, who who do you who do you go to? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, I, I think West Coast, the the culture of success, the uh, the not the the advantage of having a, a home ground or having that sort of three hour mm. buffer between the East Coast sides where they have to travel to you. Like I think you've got more advantages being yeah, a West Coast should. coach than a yeah. North Melbourne coach. And North, look, North is kind of like the Giants, and we discussed this last week, Christian, with with Rowan Connolly. Um, I asked Leon Cameron what he thought his legacy would be at the Giants. And it's funny that he didn't really dwell on the on-field stuff, but he really spoke about the off-field work that a lot of those people have to do uh, in terms of drumming up interest in, in the game in, in Sydney's West. And North's a little bit similar in that they really need to drum up interest and crowd numbers and member numbers and support. And there's a lot that, like that, that's something that coaches of clubs like Adelaide, West Coast, Collingwood don't need to do. Mm. I think West Coast West Coast is my pick. No. Yeah, again, it's an interesting question because I think list-wise, I can look at North's list and see that I'd have probably more of those players in three years' time than I would have on West Coast list. There's probably a lot more unknowns Agreed, yes. in terms in three years' time that I don't know where these guys from West Coast are going to be. But you're right in terms of, yeah, I, I was just sort of thinking this the other day in Jason Horn francis I know they haven't been great and he hasn't been on fire, but he's the number one pick. Have they... And it's hard to do, but have they marketed him enough? Have they got enough excitement about their young kids? They, they haven't played Will Phillips too much. I know he had glandular fever. Um, yeah, just little things. I know they're, they're big on Combin, Charlie Combin, who hasn't played yet. They took Jackson Edwards as the number one pick in the preseason trial. Again, you just, in what you're saying, you, you've just got to create excitement at the club, don't you? And just throw in some of these young guys. Feel like, yeah, that the team hasn't changed too much recently. And the guys that have come back in, um, have probably been, yeah, some of the older players like Jed Anderson's been rushed back in and a few others. It's sort of like, well, yeah, where are the kids and where's the excitement that you're trying to build around North? I just, I don't see it at the moment. Jake, mm. did you answer your own question? I think I would go North. Okay. I think, for, I think, I think Christian said it. I think North in a few, in two to three years time will, will be winning more games than West Coast will. I, I think West Coast is, is headed well, for we, we said the really, worst really, really poor come years. For them still. Yeah, there it is. And and people can say, oh, they've had they've been ravaged by COVID and they haven't had anyone out there. Yeah, that's somewhat true. But you can also look at some of the teams they've fielded and they've had, you know, a, a dozen premiership players out there. Yeah. So it's not like they've just been putting out all these unknown players all season. Well, we talk about experience, games played versus age, though, as well, and where that drop off is. I think this is where this is going to be interesting next week. Uh, so do do keep do keep in tune. Uh, are we worried about Frio going across town? I am. I am worried. I know the, the the premiership metrics stack up well for Frio, but even when they were flying, I'm, I'm you know, you may remember I was I was on here saying that I just feel they're an, an A grader or two short uh, from being a genuine contender. You know, I, I I still believe that the only A plus player on the team is Nat Fife, who hasn't played all year. I love Andy Brayshaw and I love David Mundy. Are they are they A grade players? No, look, 
Brayshaw is staking his case. Again, Monday, age versus an experience sort of thing. You just can't expect that kind of A-grade output from him week in, week out, let alone no, I mean, quarter to quarter. He, 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 start, he starts on the bench and then comes on yeah. up, you know, after five, six minutes. And that's just that's the role he plays. You know, he's a fantastic ball user and he's a great player and you'd, any team would love to have him. But we- I just think there's just... There's been a couple of times in the last few weeks where they've been struggling, particularly in the wet. And you're kind of looking around and you think, who's the player that's really going to get them going? We talked about the spread of goal kickers that they did have earlier in the year, the the medium size, the smalls, uh, who are sort of all averaging a goal or more per game. For me, it's just there's a lack of a a real focal point. And Matt Taberner can kick his, you know, seven goals one week, but then sort of fall out of focus and and kick one or none the next uh, Rory Lobb, you know, he's probably asked to do a bit much doing pinch hitting in the ruck, trying to be a forward, all this sort of other stuff. Josh, but Tracy, he's another one that's a bit like Tabner in the sense that he can have a he can the have flaky. an out of the box game and yeah. then go missing the next week. It's the forward line that that, that worries me. We've talked about the defense and how strong defensively they defense are. Defense is unit. great. And their yeah. transition ball. It's just the it's just the target up forward, that sort of last kick where it's going and if it can consistently hit a target that's going to score your goals. And you're right. And that's that's been their problem the last two weeks. They've only, obviously only scored just 10 goals across their past two games, uh, but scored from uh, 24% of their entries. So comp average is around 46 to 48%, usually hovers mm. around that number. So they're half the, the comp average. So 24% of their entries are leading to a score. So in those last two weeks too, you look at rounds one to eight and they were... 53 inside 50s per game. The last two weeks, they've created 56 inside 50s per game. So they've had more inside 50s than usual. They're still dominating possession, you know, against uh, Collingwood. I think they won contested possessions and uncontested. I think they had more of the ball. Uh, but it is, it's it's that that forward line bookend that's really let them, like the first thing you notice the last two weeks of how they've been beaten is just how poor their forward line has functioned. Yeah. So maybe, uh, maybe Nat Fife is the... Uh... The answer up there, Jake, because the midfield seems to be humming along. Maybe you have Fife as a forward option, um, starting in the midfield, moving forward, have be un, you know an undersized opponent. He can take a grab. His kicking's a bit suspect, but oh, he's one of the best contested marking midfielders in the game. Has been all his career. Um, his kicking is is a little bit hit and miss. But we were saying the same thing about Patrick Cripps this time last year, and look what he's been able to do um, forward to center this year. So. I don't know. Maybe it is the option, and, and then and then when they do need a spark in the midfield, he can go in, and we know what he can do um, in the middle. But yeah, look, I, I I do think Brody and Brayshaw and Mundy and Sarong, like there's a nice mix in the midfield now. Um, but I still wonder if they just have enough grunt and enough enough A grade talent. And I'm and I, I keep going on about it, but I truly believe, and that's why I do believe in Carlton because there's four or five genuine A grade players. And no team wins a flag without at least three of these these players on your team. Um, Frio don't have that, in my opinion. Fair enough. Uh, the notes I've got in front of me for you, Jake, to take the reins on the next one are Matt Rowell and contested ball. Yeah, it's something I've been noticing a little bit with Matt Rowell. And I think when he obviously, he obviously burst onto the scene in his first few games, um, polling so many Brownlow votes and everyone thought, gee, how good can this guy be? Um, he's had the injury and he's slowed down a little bit. Uh, but the big thing I've found watching him is we know he's a contested player, but he can't seem to win any ball that isn't contested. And I think that's a really worrying sign because on the weekend, he had six disposals, five were contested and just couldn't, couldn't find a way to impact the game. Um, 
so yeah, we posed the question to Christian to see where he sort of ranks in terms of current midfielders um, and how much contested ball he wins. Well, firstly, what is a contested ball? How what differs? What's the I guess the rationale that differentiates a, an uncontested disposal or possession from a contested possession? Uh, so contested possession is basically a ball that's won when either team could have won possession of the ball. So you know. A, a kick to a leading player that takes a lead mark is not going to be a contested possession because the ball was meant for you. So, um, you know, we all like to think of contested possessions being in and under, diving in to the pack and winning a, a hard ball get um, in and under. And that's, you know, your classic sort of contested possession. But even after the ball's kicked, a spoil happens and the ball goes to ground. You can win the ball in 30 metres of space. And that's a contested possession only because the ball is in a neutral situation. So it's not always the the tough in and under stuff that you're always thinking of sometimes. And again, we talk about the most valuable contested possession you can have is the loose ball get it's winning the ball in a little bit of space. That was a neutral ball, but you're right. Matt Rowell is, is all about hard ball gets and inside pre clear. And again, a lot of it is pre clearance and post clearance uh, contested possessions. Um, and he, a lot of his stuff is pre clearance and hard ball. So this year, 67% of the possessions he's won have been from a contest. Um, and it is, it's the highest of any midfielder in the comp. Um, sort of, I think it's the sixth highest of anyone with 50 possessions this year, but the five guys higher than him, I think are a couple of Ruckman and a key forward and things like that. The guys that sort of, you know, are expected to do most of their work one-on-one um, next to another opponent. So 67% for Matt Rowe this year. Next highest midfielder this year is Rory Sloan, who's only played the four games, but made the cut with 56%. Um, Even so, that's a big drop off. So yeah, that's a that's a fair jump between the two. And then the guys below Rory Sloan, Dangerfield at fifty five percent. We know what Geelong's doing with him, um, going into a mini conditioning block or something mid season. So he's obviously hasn't been the fittest he could be. Uh, Horn Francis fifty five percent. I'll go back to him in a sec. In a sec, Greenwood at fifty five percent as well, and O'Meara at fifty five percent. So again, only slightly over fifty for those. But Jason Horn Francis, another one that again, just a slight worry for me that. First year in the in the competition, you're only 10 games in and sort of being forced to, you know, you, you're number one, your team's highest contested possession rate winner. So you're mm. doing most of the grunt work. We know, I mean, he can win his own ball. We know from like a lot of his junior highlights were spectacular marks and goals from the pocket and some great rundown tackles. So he's got that athleticism and flair about him. But yeah, just at the moment, he's not being able to get much of the easy stuff going on. Um, at 55%. But yeah, going back to Matt Rowland, where the 67% ranks, again, it's a fair jump between second this year. But if you look at previous years, it's it's not real. There's always someone at least higher than that, but it's always the same guy as well. So 2021, the highest of the top 400 possession winners, Hugh Greenwood, 70% contested possession rate. So higher than Rowland this year. 2020, number one was Hugh Greenwood, 68% contested possession rate. 2019 was Hugh Greenwood, 64% contested <laughs> possession rate. 2018 was Hugh Greenwood, 64. Uh, sorry, 2018, yeah, 70, 70%. And then 2017 was 64% Hugh Greenwood as well. So it's crazy. Last five years, he's always been consistently the number one player yeah. for contested possession rate that all these balls won uh, from a contest. You can almost see why it's almost a blessing in disguise that Greenwood had to leave. Gold Coast in the end, because if you want to, again, we, we, we will talk about Matt Rowell and probably where Patrick Cripps has come in terms of you've got to get some outside balance into your game to become more valuable to your team. But where Matt Rowell's playing his best footy at the moment, if you had hit Hugh Greenwood and Matt Rowell running around in the same midfield, you've probably lost two guys on the outside. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of 
it was probably a good time for Hugh Greenwood to move on um, to North to sort of, yeah, allow Matt Rowe to do what he did, which had a flow-on effect because usually across in three of the last four years, Ben Cunnington's also been in the top three or four for contested possession rates. So you can always see North thinking as well of yeah. knowing Ben Cunnington's health issues. They probably weren't expecting him to play too much this year. Thought, how are we going to replace Ben Cunnington? Geez, there's only one guy better than him at winning contested ball. That's Hugh Greenwood. And then all of a sudden, a Thursday night press release comes out and Hugh Falls Greenwood's in actually lap. available. So, um, but yeah, you can almost see the flow on effect. And as I said, someone like Patrick Cripps, um, we talk about him, you know, 2019 is almost one of the, you know, most, uh, I don't know how to put it. Like it, people were almost sympathizing with him in terms of he was carrying up. the team. He was, yeah. yeah, 60% contested possession rate. The year before was 59%. So it was always quite high down to 49.6% this season. So finally getting his uncontested, you know, slightly more uncontested than he's getting contested possessions. And we're seeing his meter gained, his scoreboard impact and all that stuff going through the roof. All I could think of during what you guys have just been talking about was Matt Rowe just needs to speak to Paddy Cripps. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Early years, contested base. Everyone was like, oh, you had 25 touches and 20 were contested. It's like, this isn't going to be a good long term. Exactly. Trend. It's not sustainable. And you saw, we, we saw how banged up he was over the last yeah. sort of two or three years. Um, but he's been able to go away and, you know, as a more mature player now, 27 years old, I think we, we worked out before, he's been able to add another string to his bow. So if I was Matt Rowell, I'd be on the phone to Paddy Cripps during the off season, maybe not during the season, might be a bit of an unfair advantage kind of thing. But and I'd be saying, what do I need to do? How do I, how do I focus on not being so concerned with the contested footy and, and the coalface yeah. and potentially being that guy who can get an outlet hand pass every now and then? and burst away from a stoppage, which is what Cripps has added to his, his repertoire this season. Here, here's a, uh, here's a, a, a quiz, a little pop quiz question for you now. In the last three weeks, so last three games, how many, con- how many uncontested possessions do you reckon he's had, Matt Rowell, combined in the last three weeks? Well, you said last week he only had six touches and five were contested, so that's one. So I'm going to say six. <laughs> he's had six. Six uncontested possessions in, in uh, three weeks. Yeah. 35, 30, yeah, 35 contested. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? So, I mean, I, I think we all like him as a player. I think he can be a great player. He's not going to be, he's not going to be, you know, a burst type player where he's going to be streaming out of stoppages. He doesn't have that. He's not that type of player. But I Paddy Cripps someone... wasn't that type of player and he added yeah, that to and, his bow. I think, I think, and he I don't think Clayton, work, Clayton Oliver was probably very similar. Clayton Oliver was never seen that type of player either. It was that, that was a big, one big knock but, but on his game. And all these players now... that we've mentioned, Lockie Neal's another one that I see similar, some similarities between. But all these players we're mentioning, they're all kind of around that 50-50 mark in terms of contested uh, to uncontested. Um, you know, within that sort of 47 to 53% range. And, and obviously what were you saying, Matty Rowell, it's, it's, it's way off at the moment. Mm. I mean, what, what, before we move on from this really quickly, what conclusion do you want to draw? What do you want to see from him? I want to see him work on his uncontested game. Yeah. Make a point maybe, of it's a, maybe it's a, a fitness thing. I, I don't know. Maybe it's a fitness thing, you know, because, you 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 you're fine. He just he's just one stoppage to the next. Whereas you know some of these other guys, you see Oliver and, and Neil and uh, Cripps and all these guys that you do see them breaking into space. You rarely see Matt Rao by himself. <laughs> he mm-hmm. he's just sort of from one contest to the next. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, let's whip through these last few little bits and pieces before we get into 
some Ask Champion data questions, and then is the hype justified or is it hyperbole? Uh, parallels between AFL and VFL sides. Casey are flying and the Ds are flying, Christian, undefeated this season. Is this a usual sort of trend that we see in footy? Yeah, it has been. So, um, yeah, as you said, VFL, Kate, I mean, Sandful and Waffle and everything else as well. We're not yeah, just well, a... I did look at all those competitions. So it is, it's a national competition. But again, in terms of looking at recent grand finalists or premiers and where, where their um, tier two sides have been. So obviously West Coast is the only one that we have to worry about in terms of from the Waffle. They made the grand final in 2018. Their Waffle team wasn't didn't make the grand final. So they're sort of the... The uh, anomaly to all this, but yeah, you talk about Casey Demons um, being on top um, of the VFL ladder while Melbourne's on top of the AFL ladder. Didn't have um, much tier two competitions the last two years because of COVID, but go back to 2019, Richmond take home the premiership uh, and win the VFL premiership as well, beating Williamstown. The year before, as I said, 2018 is the anomaly. West Coast Collingwood played in the AFL grand final was Box Hill Casey. Uh, in the VFL Grand Final. 2017, Richmond won the Premiership, were runners-up in the uh, VFL Grand Final, lost by four points, so almost got over the line. 2016, uh, Bulldogs won the AFL Grand Final and Footscray's Reserves won the VFL Grand Final. And then even looking at going back to Hawthorne's three-peat, Box Hill won one Grand Final in that time and were runner-up the other two times. So all three times that Hawthorne played in the Grand Final, so did Box Hill. So there is, there's definitely something there that yeah, the most well-run clubs sort of get success from both of their levels. I reckon there's a, I reckon a bit of this is, you know, all these players are spending a lot of time together, training together. And, you know, some players are, are playing in both teams. You know, if you're on sort of that fringe, you, you just, the standards better. You, you become a better player when you're those standards, you're training with better players. If you're a VFL midfielder and you're getting to spend time with Christian Petrarca and Clayton Oliver every day, you're going to become a better player. Yeah. Chicken or the egg? Oh, a bit of both. <laughs> uh, your Brownlow predictor, Jake. Your uh, well, famous Brownlow predictors predicted World the famous. winner. How many times over the last how many years? Uh, seven of eight. Oh, yeah. No. So surprised um, you didn't just say eight of eight just for the hell of it. No, well, you've got to be honest. We're, we're all about <laughs> integrity here. Uh, you can check that out on ESPN.com.au forward slash AFL. Who's winning that through 10 rounds? Well, through ten, so it's yeah, it's a nice sort of sample size. Now we got we're we're approaching that halfway point of the year. It, Lockie Neal, Lockie Neal on top again, mm. um, and we were sort of just talking about this earlier. What what does that do for a legacy? Two Brownlow medals, um, yeah, one Passed of my favorite five. players of the last five years, um, yeah. So he he's leading at the moment. I've got him on seventeen point five, and yes, we give half votes. Mm. So don't tell me you can't get a half vote. Um, and just behind him, Patrick Cripps, 16, and Clayton Oliver, 16, Christian Petrarca, 15.5. So I, I get the feeling it's going to be similar to last year where it's a bit of a four-horse race. Those guys, Andy Brayshaw dropped off a little bit, and then Miller, Mills, Jeremy Cameron, who's polled quite a few votes, Gorn, Keys, Smith, Parrish, Boak. So, yeah, I think I think it's really a four-horse four race, the two Melbourne guns, Lockie Neal and Patrick Cripps. We'll keep an eye on that as the rounds progress. Uh, change of government on the weekends got me thinking. Which player would be the best prime minister, Jake? Oh, God. Uh, the most apolitical person I've ever met. Yeah, but I think you should go to Christian for this one. I would <laughs> say, actually, I'm going to say Max Gorn. I'm not a Ruckman fan, call, but yeah. Max Gorn's a very intelligent guy. He's very likable as well, Max Gorn. 
I reckon and if very Max articulate. Wants to, I'm pretty yeah. sure it works like this in politics. You have to get it. You have to get your nomination seconded, and that was going to be my one. So seconded here <laughs> oh, with Max really? Gorn. So yep. <laughs> I had um. I actually had a, I had a list of players I thought would, would be good prime ministers, and that doesn't happen too often. Phil Davis. Patrick Dangerfield, uh, AFLPA uh, president, gets up in front of the microphone. He does like he does like a bit of the me 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 time. Yeah, a little bit. That's PM has to have a bit of me 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 time. Jacob Weedering. So you've gone nah, too serious. All the serious, serious Yeah, go. Let's go back to Bob Hawke being our prime minister. Have a bit of flair as our prime minister. A bit of <laughs> bit of a larrikin, So that's why I've gone Max Gorn. You know okay. someone who can who can chug a beer. Um, what about? I can see uh, Toby Green as PM. <laughs> Could you really? <laughs> I was going to say Stephen May. He was famously caught drinking a beer that one time. Shannon Hearn, Nat Fife, Jack Revolt, Callan Ward. A few nominations, maybe. Shannon Hearn. Shannon Hearn looks like a, a, a an MP, doesn't he? That's a bit of an insult for Shannon. Apologies to you, Shannon. Isn't no, it? He does. He looks like you could, you know, the MP office, and you got his photo up on the glass. <laughs> the National Curriculum Football Podcast has a new home at ESPN to be found wherever you get your pods from. To mark the occasion, they asked us to make an ad around 15 seconds, but we're going to go an hour and a half. <laughs> Laugh. Staff. Half. <laughs> See you soon, guys. Oh, Anto, you're a sod. Uh, ask Champion Data. We've got a few more questions coming in. If you do want to ask uh, Christian or Champion Data a question, do tweet us at Footy Tips uh, on Twitter, at Footy Tips, or use the hashtag AskChampionData. How does one become a champion data caller or statistician? Ooh. And do you need any qualifications? Asks Michael Butler. Um, no, Phil, no particular qualifications. Oh, get um, him in. Get Michael in. <laughs> yeah. No, so we do. We have, we have a process. So obviously I, um, I was just, I just tried to find out this morning how many resumes slash applications we got last season. Um, still waiting for the answer, but we sort of, yeah, start, I think it's, you know, from LinkedIn and um, I think AF, AFL.com have a recruiting site as well for jobs in the industry. And we sort of advertise on that, get people to, you know, send in their resumes and cover letters. And I think from there, you know, top of my head, it'd have to be over, you know, two, two to 500 each year that come in. Um, and obviously we have all different roles. So we have interchange, we have keyboard, uh, the capture of person who has to actually enter the stats, so all different skills needed. So if we're talking about the caller ones though, you go through a player ID test to start with. So just an AFL uh, player ID test. Some of the shots are from footage. Some of the some of them are just their headshots, like Jared Linett in his whatever laid <laughs> top. And thank you. You know, we use some oh, of those so headshots. You, so, you actually have to identify a picture of a player or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, a, a, either a, ah. of just a screenshot and the three players. What if on you the say Linett and not Linett? Do you, is uh, that I think it's, I think it's typed. I think to get the first part is are uh, they they put their answers in text so they don't have right. to pronounce it correctly which is good so we can put Phil Thorpe and line it and lean it and all that on there and you wouldn't get it wrong but yeah I think I think depending on each year there's sort of a minimum that we sort of start to look at our callers but I think that's around 43 out of 50 um, is the, the minimum you get to actually be considered a caller right so um, a high footy IQ really yeah so that's footy the start smart. of it is yeah for, for caller you need to be able to have that really really good player ID but again it's one of those ones we 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 hire for a lot of our call, you know, we probably have more tier two callers, state league callers than we have AFL callers because there's more of those games to capture. So there's only so much player ID you can get you as a caller. So it is, yeah. it's all about the footy knowledge. So we start with the ones with good player ID, but then we just start. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a training process in terms of, all right, 
go away and listen to the call without any training and come back and do it yourself. So show us what you think you need to do. And, you know, you get people sort mm. of coming in and just, you know, blurting stuff out and you sort of say, okay, from there. And then we sort of train them. Um, and again, it's, it's a long training process. It's usually about 12 to 13 sessions uh, minimum to yeah, get right. someone up to speed. And, you know, you sometimes you get to about five or six sessions in and you say, hey, you're probably not going to be a caller. You're probably not going to keep up with the player enough, but you'd be really good as a matchup operator who's playing on who or interchange operator who's coming on and off the ground and being able to identify those players quickly. So, again, it, it, a lot of it, a lot of the starting point is player ID, mm. but then basically your footy knowledge and sort of how well you can communicate and, you know, speak into a microphone to get all the stats captured or how quick you are on a mouse to actually capture the stats will sort of define what role you're best used in. Cool. There you go. There you go. I don't think I'd be very good. I'd, I'd get distracted too easily, I think. But it is. It's, just it's, quick, it probably quick. does surprise people. They think, you know, uni degrees or some sort. It's like, no, we don't, we don't care what qualifications just you have. Just, just know your footy and you're a chance. Quick sidebar question here, but which two players do you get mixed confused the most? Uh, for sim- in terms of the most simple one that I always frustrate myself with is Mitchell and Warple. I yeah, see the number. They both I see three and still four. <laughs> three and four. Five. I don't know. It's just and I, similar to when Nathan Brown and Lee Brown were at Collingwood. Collingwood. Yeah. One, one I season knew which one was which, but my brain would just, yeah, my brain would just stutter. Every time I'd call one of those, I'd be like, Nathan, no, that's Lee Brown. I know it's Lee Brown in the ruck, but, but now Warple and Mitchell's probably the one that gets me. Harry most. and Ben Mackay. Good thing they're wearing different jumpers. Yeah. <laughs> Bailey Dale and, and um, Jack McRae, are, they both have the same running style. And when you can, kind when of, you can yeah. see the one, the 31 and the 11 on one side, they look identical. Uh, we're running out of time, but we'll keep running through this. Um, Dara Murphy on Twitter. Lions played poorly against the Hawks yesterday, but they've been pl- they've now played two consecutive games on the road. Wondering if there's a noticeable drop off in performance if teams play multiple consecutive games on the road. Mm. Well, yeah, you would have thought so, and um, I think you know if Brisbane were listening to this, they probably hope that there wasn't a, an excuse for them. But no, not really. <laughs> so if you look at the first time you play interstate, so teams playing interstate have a, and this is going back to 2000, excluding 2020, when every team was playing in a state. So uh, traveling in a state, you get a 41% win rate and your percentage is 90.1%. Uh, sorry, sorry, scratch that. First game in state, 40, yeah, 41% win rate, 89.8% percentage. So, uh, you know, not too bad. Interstate after playing interstate the week before is actually a 42% win rate. So 1% and higher and yeah. a ladder percentage of 92.4. So 3% better. So your scoring is usually closer to the opposition. So again, I feel like this is one, even though we've used a pretty good sample size going back to 2000, I think this is one where everyone talks about how the fixturing isn't fair and it's so all over the shop. There mm-hmm. is some fairness to the fixture. I feel like the AFL, you'd have to go back historically and look at it, but even looking at some of the opposition clubs that came up in this query, there's a fair few Melbournes and Gold Coasts and things like that. So I feel like the AFL, if they know they're scheduling you for two straight interstate trips, they're not going to schedule You're not playing two top four teams. Yeah, from the year before. So obviously they can't predict who's going to be top four, but at the moment they keep getting it right and you seem to get your second interstate game against the weaker opposition. Is the hype justified or is it hyperbole? Uh, The segment where I say a statement, you guys tell me whether the hype is justified or I'm speaking in hyperbole. Jake, 30 seconds. Chicken wing tackles are worse than touching an umpire and therefore Sam Switkowski should cop six or more weeks like Toby Green did. Well, they're going to do more damage, obviously. Toby Green's putting his hand on 
uh, Matt Stevick, was it? I think it was Matt Stevick. It certainly was, yeah. Uh, like, it's not going to really do anything, but we know the umpires are off limits and we know the penalty for touching an umpire is significantly more for touching a, a player. I think uh, what we saw with Sam Switkowski should be two to three weeks. Some people might think that's that's harsh and others might think it's lenient. I, I We don't see it too much though. It's not something we, we have in the, a lot in the game, but I do think it's something we don't really want to have. And yeah, when you're pulling the arm up behind the back, it can be pretty dangerous. So yeah, happy to get rid of that and give him a couple of weeks. Two, two, you think two is fair? I think two to three, yeah. Especially for someone, I don't believe he's a player that's had any trouble in the past yeah, with. Fair. Has he been suspended? I don't think he's been suspended before. Something about Jack Ginevan, which just gets the, uh, the fires yeah. well, burning. To- well, we joked before, if Toby Green had done this, what would he get? Yeah, Life man. Hey, uh, you one got one for me? You. I do have one for you. A relocated team won't work in Tasmania. Absolutely justified. I'll keep it very brief. But when I was in Tasmania last, I actually made a point of asking locals this. Uh, and I said, you know, would you support a, a footy team being created here? Yep, absolutely. What if it was a team that was relocated and they said their heart would not be in it? So I know that Hutchie and some others in the industry think that relocated teams and and all this work and it's it doesn't matter who it is, though, anyone will support them. I mm. think that's, that's absolute crap. And the culture here uh, and in Tasmania is a bit more nuanced than what people think, and it would yep. not work. I tend to agree with that. Yeah. George Hewitt is the recruit of the year, Christian. Yeah, I would have thought so. Again, just basing it on team needs and how the team's playing. Carlton basically, you know, talking about premiership signature and all that, their turnover game's not quite strong enough, but their clearance game is they're scoring from clearances and their ability to win the inside ball is just so well, so far ahead of the rest. And George Hewitt's third in the competition for clearances per game behind Oliver and McRae. So perfect addition um, to the Carlton midfield. And again, leads to Patrick Cripps winning more of the ball on the outside. Will Super Brody consistent. Get a look in? Will Brody gets a look in and Jordan Dawson, surely beating, beating Port Adelaide <laughs> after the siren in a showdown gets you there as well. He's, he's already paid for himself. Uh, that's all for this week. Uh, footy tips, you can tip with us, footytips.com.au forward slash STN footy pod. Uh, you can also tweet us at footy tips if you want to get questions in for Ask Champion Data, as I said. Jake, good to see you're back up and about and out of hospital. Christian, hopefully you feel better soon. We'll maybe get in the office and we'll have an office pod next no, week. Because you'll get it next week. Oh, they, it's going around, they tell me. So you'll have it next week. <laughs> <laughs> it's going around. Uh, thanks to everyone at home for listening and we will speak to you in the next one. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.